when you go to the mailbox one afternoon, you find two envelopes. You open the envelopes up and you have invitations to two different parties. And the problem is that they are scheduled for the exact same day, the exact same time. You cannot possibly attend both parties. And so obviously you have to make a decision. So what would you do? I asked Landon this yesterday and he started asking questions. He said, well, are they at the same place? You know, who, who are they for? And I said, I'm glad you, you started asking questions, buddy. That's exactly what I assumed people would do. We would research into these parties, right? Who's hosting these parties? What kind of party is it? Where is it at? <clears throat> What's on the menu, right? Who else is going to be there? We would ask all these sorts of questions before we made our decision. And as you do this, you find out that one party is more like a banquet. And it's hosted by a very wealthy, sophisticated lady at her beautiful mansion. But she's not arrogant about who she is. She is not uppity, as we would say. She's not snobby. She's inviting everyone to her party, not just the elite. And she is working hard preparing for this banquet. She's putting effort into planning this. She is sparing no expense and not flaunting her wealth, but doing it all to serve others. She'll have bounce houses for the kids, I'm sure, and toys for them to play with, and the menu will be a full-course meal with the finest fillets you could ever ask for, and you know there will be homemade ice cream for dessert. And the dinnertime conversation will be about God, about His ethics, about morality, joy, peace, and love, it will be an uplifting, encouraging, overwhelmingly beneficial feast. The other party is a little different. It's sort of just thrown together. It has none of the classiness or the prestige of the other one. The hostess is a lazy woman who will not serve others. She will not put forth a lot of effort to make this worthwhile. She doesn't promise much food, just bread and water are here. And instead of positive and uplifting and encouraging conversation and fellowship, this is one of those parties where the police might get called. It will probably be sinful. It will be immoral. It might maybe think of your stereotypical college frat party. And so you've got to RSVP to one of these two events. Which one are you going to? Hopefully that's an easy decision for us. Don't go to the party that will get you in trouble. Don't go to the place where the hostess doesn't care about you anyway. Go to the first party. Go to this prestigious, beautiful, edifying banquet where this lady is, is humbly offering to share everything she has with you. Those scenarios are what Proverbs 9 is all about. When we look at Proverbs chapter 9... For one final time before we move into chapter 10 and we start to see those quick truth nuggets, those bullet points that we are all so accustomed to thinking about when we think about Proverbs. For one final time, wisdom and folly are personified, both vying for your attention, both throwing parties, both inviting you to join them. And so in Proverbs 9 verses 1 through 6, we will see Lady Wisdom inviting us to her banquet. At the end of the chapter in verse 13 through 18, Madam Folly will invite you to her party. And sandwiched in between these two invitations, verse 7 through 12, we're going to see sort of different responses 
to these two invitations. Some people will laugh and ridicule wisdom's invitation. They will scoff at it. They don't want it. And they will instead choose the fleeting pleasures of sin, choosing to go to the foolishness party. There is no third party. There is no third option. There's no door number three. You have to choose one or the other. So let's see how Solomon first described wisdom's banquet. Look at Proverbs chapter 9, verse 1 through 6. I'm reading in the ESV. Solomon says, Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. So here's the first scenario. Wisdom's invitation to her banquet. And it's interesting, actually, in verse 1, the word for wisdom is actually a plural word. This doesn't happen often in Proverbs, just a handful of times. And it doesn't mean that this is, that it should be translated wisdoms. Okay, it's not a, a plural numerically the way we think of it. There's a nuance in the Hebrew language that's sometimes referred to as the plural of majesty. And it's where the Hebrews would make a word plural because it was a way to show the fullness of something. The, the preeminence or the majesty of it. And the most familiar one, you may not know this, but you, or at least you don't know that you know it. But if you heard the word Elohim before in Hebrew, that means God. That's a plural word in the Hebrew, but most of the time it refers to the one true God. And it's plural to show His majesty, to show His greatness and His fullness. And that's a little bit of what's happening here in verse 1 with wisdom. This is a lady who is majestic. She is preeminent. She is honorable. And if you look down at verse 13 for just a second, I know we haven't read the verses, but we're introduced to the woman folly in verse 13. Folly is just a singular word. She's not majestic. She's not honorable. There's no fullness or preeminence with her. So back in verse 1, we see that, that Mrs. Wisdom, this majestic lady, she's built her house and has even hewn or dug out these seven pillars and one author says there are a lot of fancy ideas about what this means. He says the, the reference to seven pillars has provoked many varied and highly creative interpretations. You can ask me if you're interested later and I can give you some sort of funny interpretations. But for, for time's sake, we won't go there right now. I won't get into those. The basic point of, of wisdom's house having seven pillars is that if you look down in verse 14... Folly's house doesn't have any of that. She just has a regular old house. And so the contrast is that wisdom's dwelling place is enough to need seven columns or seven pillars supporting it. Folly just has a, has a regular house. Now if you press the number seven, um, it could symbolize that this is the, the perfect, complete environment for you to learn from her. Okay, there's, there's nothing lacking about where this party is going to be held. Um, it's, it's the perfect place. It's a beautiful, beautiful mansion 
That's where this banquet will be held. And in verse 2, we start to see that she's held nothing back from this banquet. She's taking the very best of what she has, and she's offering it to you. Um, think through the Bible all the times where people would prepare an animal and prepare a feast for someone. It's a big deal in the ancient world to take an animal from your flock and kill it and dress it and prepare it for a guest. One author said, The slaughter of animals and offer of meat marks the occasion as one considered especially noteworthy. Um, we see that a lot in the Bible. We read, you know, the phrase, they go get the fatted calf and, and, and prepare it and cook it. And if that's happening, you're showing an awful lot of respect to your guests. And Lady Wisdom is doing that. She's taking her best and giving it to us. Verse 2 also says she's mixed her wine, which indicates even more preparation for her banquet. Madam Folly is just going to offer you water. Mrs. Wisdom is going to have wine for you. She has been preparing this. Verse 2 says uh, she set the table. So you children didn't know that setting the table for dinner was so wise. But maybe, no, I better not go there. I better stop. In verse 3, Mrs. Wisdom has sent out her servants to invite people. So even though the banquet's very prestigious, she even has her servants going out for her, inviting you. But notice that as fancy as this party is going to be, it's not for the who's who of the world. It's not going to be some elite restricted dinner that the ticket is so expensive, you know, the guests are very limited. You don't get into this feast with your wallet. You get into this feast by admitting you need to get into this feast. You get in by admitting that you need to learn from this lady. Notice verse 4 and verse 5 again. The invitation that's sent out says, Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, say, she says, Come eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. She invites people who are called simple and who lack sense. Um, the phrase lack sense here literally means lack lacks heart, but it's not talking about your heart muscle. It, it's sort of the idea of lack, someone who lacks a heart of wisdom. We've seen Solomon use that, uh, that phrase before. When she uses the term simple in verse 4, we've seen this term before as well. Solomon used it in his opening comments back in chapter 1, where one of the goals of this entire book was to give prudence to the simple. And this was that person who is just very searching. They're, they're gullible, open-minded, naive, and a lot of times that's a bad thing. If you're open-minded to sin, if you're willing to try out foolishness, then that's, that's the bad gullibility to have. That's, that's the bad open-mindedness. But if you're open-minded to wisdom, that's a good thing. So Mrs. Wisdom wants to call people who are still able to be molded. She's calling for those people who are still searching. But I want you to look down at verse 16. Madam Folly is going to issue the same call, the same invitation to the same people. Look at verse 16. For her thrown together party, she says, Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. Don't listen to this other lady. If you're simple, this is where you need to be. And she even goes on and says, To him who lacks sense. 
She says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. So Mrs. Wisdom and Madam Folly are both vying for your attention. But the ticket to attend the first banquet is just to see that you need there, uh, that you need to be there. To view yourself as this person who is open-minded enough to search for this wisdom. To know that you need it. I like the way one author said, he said, the invitation for this banquet is not prepared based upon what a person has, but on what a person lacks. That's great. Have you ever thrown a party and said, anybody who needs this, come to this party? That's usually the opposite of what we, of what we do when we have a get-together. It's, here's what you can bring. And <laughs> we even ask that, right? What can I bring? Miss Wisdom doesn't want you to bring anything. She wants you to admit that you need to be there to learn from her, and she will provide everything. In verse um, 5, Wisdom offers true nourishment. She says, eat of my bread, drink of my wine. And when we think about that, coupled with the animal that's going to be slaughtered for this feast, it is going to be a feast. It will nourish you. And a lot of commentators make the point that the idea of eating and drinking have always been capable of expression. Uh, God's invitation has always been capable of expression in these terms. A lot of times in the Bible we see the idea of, you know, um, eat from me and drink from me and, and, and that sort of food invitation for us accepting something from God. And ultimately, if you think, especially in John's gospel, Jesus Christ offered himself to us with this same type of terminology. In John chapter 6, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And in John 7, he said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Finally, in verse 6, we see what the point of this banquet is all about. There's no ulterior motive from Mrs. Wisdom. She's not looking to get something from you. She's looking to help you. In verse 6, when she says, leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight, it's an encouragement that even though you show up searching, even though you show up with an open mind, she wants to fill that open mind with God's wisdom. She does not want you to remain gullible and naive and open to sin. She wants to expose you to God's wisdom. So while the simple are invited, they are urged not to stay simple. Which again is one of the very goals of this book, is to give prudence to the simple. So this party will benefit you. You're encouraged to leave the simple ways. You may have a note in your Bible in verse 6 that even, uh, it, some believe this even refers to leave the simple friends and companions of the past. And that, that's a possibility too. Who you hang around with and spend time with matters. So this banquet is all about teaching you how to live and walk in understanding and in insight. That'd be a great party to attend, wouldn't it? That's Wisdom's Banquet, held at her majestic dwelling place. She's worked hard to prepare this. She's spared no expense, and it's all for you. But you could go to the other party. No one's going to force you to go to this banquet. Let's skip the middle section for a moment 
and look at Folly's party so we can see the juxtaposition with Wisdom's banquet so fresh on our minds. Look at verse 13 through 18. The woman Folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Folly does not have the classiness, the work ethic, or the environment that Lady Wisdom has. First of all, in verse 13, she is described as loud. She's loud. It's an interesting word because it means a lot more than just extreme volume. It's not, it, it, it can be that, but it's a little bit more. It has the idea of something that creates a disturbance or a turmoil. And it's used to describe the roaring, crashing ocean waves of a storm. Jonah might have heard some of those <laughs> recently. We've been, we saw that. It, it describes dogs howling at something and bears growling and thunder clashing. So it's loud, but it's, it's disturbing loud. That's this lady. Okay? I love the way the King James translates it. It says that she, she's clamorous. And the New American Standard says boisterous, and I think that's a good translation too. It's, it's, it's annoyingly loud disturbingly loud. The rest of verse 13 is, is difficult. The English Standard Version uses the word seductive to describe her there. Um, the word is actually very similar to the word for simple or naive that we saw earlier. Um, so most translation, translations actually put simple or naive there in verse 13 to describe this, this lady. And that seems to fit with the end of the verse about how she knows nothing, that this simplicity and, and ignorance sort of maybe go together, and you add to those qualities her laziness. In verse 14 and 15, she just sits. She either sits at the door of her house, or she goes to a prominent place in the city, and she just sits down and starts yelling at people to come to her party. Come and join her. The word for seat in verse 14 is really interesting. Because it's used over a hundred times in the Old Testament and almost always translated as throne. There's a handful of times it's not. And this is, it's probably good here to just translate it as seat with the context. But it's interesting and there's several, several commentators bring out the point of it's interesting to think about this word as a throne because that's what foolishness wants to do to you essentially. It, it, foolishness wants to, to be your ruler. She wants to, to be your queen, and she wants to sit on the throne. And one author says it like this. She wants to establish a tyrannical rule of foolishness over the lives of the unsuspecting and naive. So the contrast between these two hostesses is very striking. Wisdom's working hard on her banquet. Folly's lazy. She's just sitting there. Wisdom has sent out servants with this beautiful invitation. Folly's just yelling at you. There is a similarity, though. It's that they are both calling for you. They're both inviting you, and they're both calling for the simple. 
right? They offer the same invitation. I mentioned that a moment ago. The same invitation for the same searching people. The difference is that while Lady Wisdom can actually change you for the good, Madam Folly's in no position to help you. Remember, she's simple too. She's naive and she's ignorant. How can someone simple help someone who's simple? It's sort of like our old adage, the blind leading the blind. How can a boisterous, lazy, naive, ignorant person help me? Say, why would anyone ever go to her party, Brother Matt? She sounds like a terrible hostess. She is. So why would anyone go to that party? Well, because she's a liar and she offers a bit of excitement. Okay? Wisdom encourages you to come and learn from her and you'll leave a better person. Folly just promises a night of fun. In verse 17 as Folly extends the invitation and says, Stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. That's an es essentially a promise that my party will be fun in the eyes of the world. There's, there's an immoral excitement about this party. A little bit of, let's see what we can do and get away with. It'll be, it'll be a little wrong and isn't that sort of fun? It reminds me of the banquet in Esther chapter 1. If you remember, King Ahasuerus throws this banquet and there was only one rule. You can do whatever you want. That was the rule. There is no compulsion. That's what the Bible says in chapter 1 of Esther there. You could do whatever your flesh desired. That's the appeal, at least the fleshly appeal of the party of foolishness here. Wisdom offers a banquet feast for our benefit and folly just wants to lure us with a little bit of excitement of eating stolen goods. But if we know wisdom like we're hopefully learning from Solomon, we see that this is not really what it seems to be. Folly's little impromptu immoral party turns out to be a cemetery. Turns out to be a graveyard. Verse 18 says, But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. If one of the questions that you ask before you go to the party is, Who all is going to be there? The answer to party B is dead people. Okay, then I think I want to go to party A. Sinfulness may be exciting for a moment. The author of Hebrews even said Moses thought about the fleeting pleasures of sin, but he did not want that. He, he viewed the reproach of Christ worth more than those fleeting momentary pleasures of sin. It may look fun and exciting on Friday night. If you drive by this party, these people may look like they're having fun. But come back Saturday morning when the party's over and see how pathetic those people look like where they're laying face down, passed out, wherever they fell. It's not where you want to be. It's a graveyard. Solomon has used strong language like this before, right? Language of the grave. We need to realize that if you reject 
God's wisdom and you embrace a life of foolishness, it is a life and death decision. And it's a decision that's all yours. Sandwiched between these two very different invitations is a brief look at how different people RSVP, how different people respond. So look at verse 7 through 12. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And he, he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. Some people will look at wisdom's invitation and they will scoff at it. And we, we see the scoffer here in verse 7 and 8. And we've seen this word before just like we've seen the word simple. The scoffer is a more hardened heart than the simple person. Okay, the simple person is naive. They're still open-minded. They're still searching. The scoffer's done with that. He's made up his mind, and he is now ready to mock and ridicule wisdom. This is an advanced case of foolishness. I mentioned in an earlier lesson that even the root word uh, that scoffer comes from has the idea of speaking like a barbarian. It's sort of like when you hear someone speaking in a foreign language, it just sounds like gibberish. I can't understand you. That's what wisdom is to a scoffer. It's a foreign language. It's just gibberish. And they mock it, and they ridicule it, and they make fun of it. So when this person hears the invitation of wisdom, that's what he does. He ridicules her. He laughs at her. He rolls his eyes and walks the other way. He does not want to be rebuked or corrected. He does not want to learn anything. And it's interesting that Solomon even offers a warning to the wise about rebuking the scoffer. It, it, it's a waste of time. It, it will cause you nothing but pain. I think we could use our phrase, it's like arguing against a brick wall. It's sort of talking to a brick wall. They do not have a teachable spirit. There's an arrogance here. They feel like they don't need anything, which is exactly what's required to attend Wisdom's Banquet in the first place, is to realize that you need it. You have to admit that you need to be there. Scoffer doesn't want to do that. I read one man who made a, a really excellent point, I thought. He said that scoffing, it is the mood of our culture. It's a real simple statement, but it's really profound. In our society overall, people cannot stand to be corrected. Nobody wants to hear that they are wrong. It's politically incorrect to say anything against anything. That's the society that we live in. An arrogant, unteachable society. That is the epitome of man's foolishness, and it is exactly 
what a scoffer is. You can't teach me anything. I don't want to hear it. I'm going to laugh and ridicule and mock your invitation to do so. One man says that's exactly the difference between wisdom and foolishness. He says it is a teachable spirit that makes the difference between wisdom and foolishness. So the person uh, in verse 7 and the first part of verse 8, this scoffer, they can't stand to be rebuked. But the end of verse 8 and verse 9, the wise person wants it. The wise person, if you, if you reprove him, he'll love you for it. If you give instruction to a wise man, he will grow in his wisdom. If you're truly wise, then you understand that you need teaching. Especially from God's Word. And you have the understanding that I'm not perfect and I need God's direction in my life. And as you gain it, it just increases your wisdom. It multiplies it. And I want you to look in verse 9. An interesting thing happens here when at the beginning of the verse we talk about giving instruction to a wise man. But the second part of the verse, the parallel is a righteous man. A wise man is paralleled to a righteous man. And I believe that paves the way for verse 10 where we have another reminder as this section closes before chapter 10 that wisdom is completely wrapped up in fearing the Lord. Wisdom and righteousness go together. You cannot have one without the other. Wisdom is not possible apart from fearing God. It's not possible. Hopefully you remember some of the aspects of fearing the Lord that we've talked about a few times now. Fearing the Lord, it does involve a healthy understanding of the terror of God. It involves humility. It involves that reverential awe, understanding who God is. And it also involves obedience. A big part of it is obedience. And all in all, it necessitates a relationship with him. Remember that when Solomon uses this phrase here, and you can see it in verse 10, the fear of the Lord, Lord is in all capital letters. This is specifically talking about fearing Jehovah God. That's also important in our world today. Fearing any other so-called God or being sincere with just any old religion will not bring wisdom. Wisdom's completely built upon a relationship with the only true God that comes only through His Son, Jesus Christ. How could you possibly live a life of wisdom in a world Jehovah created if you don't have a relationship with Him? Without that, you're missing the beginning of wisdom. But for those who do humble themselves before God, for those who receive Jesus as Savior, for those who want to be taught God's wisdom, who realize they need it, they will be blessed. God has prepared an amazing banquet for us if we'll receive it. And verse 11 mentions part of that, that banquet's blessing that we've seen before. 
Your days will be multiplied. Years will be added to your life. That was promised in the Ten Commandments for those who honored their parents. But if we move into the New Testament thinking about this blessing, isn't that expounded and added to a little bit? Those who trust in Jesus will enjoy what? Eternal life. I would say that's long life to the fullest. Eternal life. So you can accept wisdom's invitation and be blessed with life, or you can go to Folly's party and be cursed with death. And the decision really is that obvious. The outcomes couldn't be more diverse. But I want you to notice verse 12 again. Nobody can make the decision for you. Verse 12 says, If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. Some authors say that verse 12 here in Proverbs 9 is the most individualistic or, or personal statement in the whole Bible. It means that you and you alone bear the responsibility of deciding which banquet you'll attend. You decide which invitation you'll accept. Your parents can't do it for you. Your friends can't do it for you. Your church, your pastor, no one can do it for you. One author says, in the final analysis, each man stands alone before God. When you stand before God in judgment, it won't matter what the other people around you did. It will matter what you did. One author said, as important as community is, I cannot borrow character from you, nor can you borrow character from me. Just being at church will not change us. No one gets a degree from Vanderbilt by hanging out on campus and blending in with the students. Even so, each of us must receive Christ personally. We must seek Him and engage with Him personally. You don't become holy and righteous and, and wise by osmosis. Hanging around other Christians doesn't make you a Christian. It's good to surround yourself with the right influences. Don't misunderstand. But you have the right, the freedom, and the responsibility to make your own decision. So what's it going to be? Which party will you attend? Will you choose God's wisdom? Will you choose Jesus and have a blessed and eternal life? God did so much to prepare to give you an invitation to have the blessings of eternity. He sent His Son to die for you, to take your sins and your punishment off your shoulders so that you could be forgiven, so that you can have peace and joy. God has sent out an invitation to an amazing banquet but you have to recognize you need it. You need Jesus. If you turn to him, you'll be blessed. Or you could scoff at God's teaching. 
You can choose the world's foolishness. It's your decision. But if you make that decision, you will suffer deadly, eternal consequences. I love this chapter. I love the way Solomon portrays these two philosophies. Two hostesses. Both wrong parties. You can only go to one of them. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the wisdom that you gave Solomon and that you inspired him to write for us and record and preserve throughout the, his, uh, throughout the centuries. Father, help us to be wise enough to understand that we need your wisdom. Thank you so much for, for preparing such a feast for us in your word, through your son, through everything that he has done for us so that we can enjoy eternal blessings with you. Lord, I pray that if there's someone here today who has not made the decision to trust in Jesus, I pray that they will do that before it's too late, Lord. Help us as we live in this world full of scoffers, Lord, to boldly proclaim your truth and stand on your word and live what we preach so that this world can see your love and your grace through us. Father, forgive us of our sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.